So this evening, <coughs> here we are on the on the other side of Purim. Uh, I think enough uh, recovery time has elapsed for us to re resume our deliberations in the Parsha, and uh, we finish Chumash Shemos this evening with Vayakel and Pekude. And the Parsha Vayakel begins, as we know, just a, it's a very very broad uh, overview <coughs> because the Mishkan really spans. Uh, the better part of five parshas, uh, the Mishkan and related matters. So parshas Truma and Tetzave are the command parshas, right, where we have the command to make the Mishkan and the Big Day Kahuna. Kisisa has a bit of Mishkan and a lot of other, including Egel, as we know. And then Vayakal Pekude are the, cons- are the actual manufacture parshas. Vayakal of the Mishkan and Pekude of Big Day Kahuna. <coughs> so the first 20 or so psukim in Vayakal detail all the component parts of the Mishkan. And then the, the people begin to donate. And the donations are referred to in Pasuk Kaf Aleph. Perik Lamed Hey, Pasuk Kaf Aleph. And what does it say? <coughs> They came, and who came? Each person whose heart had raised him up. And everyone whose spirit had volunteered him. They brought the contributions and donations. For the project of the oil mode of the Mishkan, its service, Ulavigde Hakodesh, and the holy garments. So, this is the Pasuk which describes the people donating. And we note that there are two references to the generosity of the people, or, or two, two ways of describing those who gave. <coughs> the first phrase, that we see is Asher Nisa'olibo, whose heart raised him up. Secondly, Asher Nadvarucha Oso, whose spirit volunteered him or, or, or moved him. And the question, of course, is what is the difference between these two things? After all, money is money and donations are donations. What is behind this twofold? <coughs> uh, description of what it was that brought people to give to the Mishkan. And this is a question, as we can appreciate, which has attracted the attention of uh, many Mepharshim, Rishonim and Achronim. And <coughs> we'll begin with the Orachayim HaKadosh. And the Orachayim HaKadosh, one could say, describes the difference between these two things in terms of quantities. That is to say, when it comes to giving. There are two uh, types of donation. There are people who give within their means, and that's something that they can reasonably uh, part with and, and, and contribute. There are people who give in, in excess of their, of, their, of their means, beyond what uh, one, could reason, one would reasonably expect for them, and they come through and give even more. 
<laughs> says the Rechaim HaKadosh. This is the difference between these two phrases. And he lays critical emphasis, you could say, on the verb, Nisao, raised him up, and Nadva, to volunteer. Because to raise something up is higher than it was originally. And that refers to the first phrase, Nisao Libo, is higher than he is naturally expected to give, beyond the beyond his means. <coughs> Whereas the second phrase, Nad Farucho, Nedivut, is generosity, but it's not generosity that raises him higher than uh, he naturally would be. Rather, it's uh, within his means. An interesting distinction of the Arachayim. I think what, what makes it also uh, very... Um, interesting is that in the Midbar, with the entire Jewish people having left Mitzrayim, one has to wonder what constitutes beyond a person's means, in the sense that everyone apparently was, was very wealthy by then. No one had any other expenses. Uh, I, I don't know that money was used for, for anything in the Midbar. So it's, it's very interesting to, to see different donations. That's within the person's means, that's beyond the person's means. Um, but in any case, that is a, just a point to ponder uh, with regards to the Orachaim. But again, as we said, the Orachaim, he distinguishes between these two phrases in terms of quantity, within what, what they could reasonably afford, or even beyond that. Nadva versus Nisa, raised up. A different way of slicing these two uh, terms is found actually in the writings of the Ramah. Now we're of course familiar with the Ramah primarily in in the world of Halacha. <coughs> he has the glosses on the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Moshe Isilis, the father of uh, modern Ashkenazi Psak. But he also has a sefer called Torah Haola. And this sefer is a discussion of all the, the meanings behind everything related to the Mishkan, Korbanos, Beis Hamigdash, and many, many related matters. It's a, truly a fascinating sefer. And in the course of that sefer, he discusses these two terms. What is the difference between, again, Nisao Libo, his heart raised him up, and Nadva Rucho Oso? And for the Ramah, these two phrases represent two different motivational sources for giving. Says Ramah, people give to a good cause, but in a different way. Sometimes you can have someone who is maybe naturally generous or naturally open to this particular cause, happy to give in, in, in a very, very natural sense. But then you can have someone who he does give. One wouldn't exactly say he's happy to give, but he gives anyway because he knows that he should. It's almost like his higher faculties are, are carrying the day here. They're holding sway. As if to say, all things being equal, he wouldn't really want to give, but he knows that he should, and therefore he does. <coughs> and says the Ramam, that's the difference between these two types of giving mentioned in the Pasuk. Where does it come from? Does it come from the heart? Or does it come from the spirit? Is it Nisa'o Libo? 
their heart raised them up, in other words, they naturally felt that they wanted to give, or <coughs> is it the sa'aruchom? Their, their heart would like to keep the money for themselves. But their ruach, their spirit, tells them they really should be contributing to the Mishkan. And I think many a rabbi uh, since that time uh, has had to know how to speak both to people's hearts and to people's spirits because you never know where exactly the contribution is going to come from. But they are two different types. So what's, what's very interesting if we would compare the Orachaim's distinction with the Ramah's distinction is that for the Orachaim it's about, as we said, quantities. Within a means, beyond his means. For the Ramah, one could possibly say it's more about qualities, specifically the quality within the person that is uh, motivating him to give to the Mishkan. So these are two classic approaches. <coughs> but then, we, if we go backwards, and, and there's, we'll see there's a reason why we mentioned the earliest last, the Ramban has already discussed this matter, and in fact... According to Ramban, these two phrases are not only two different types of giving, they're not even talking about giving to the same thing. What does this mean? Says Ramban. People were required to donate or volunteer two types of things to the Mishkan. Number one, materials. And number two, themselves. The Mishkan was made by people. But who decided who will be those involved? <clears throat> it's the people themselves. It, we don't know how, just how many people were involved in the making of the Mishkan and the Big Day Kuhuna. It's interesting to, to ponder. But who decided what that group of people should be? It's that group of people who ever came forward and said, I would like to be involved. One of the artisans. The only question is, says Ramban, how are they qualified? Who among them is qualified or has any experience in, uh, in art, in the delicacy that's required to make some of these things, to be working with fine materials? The answer is none of them. Until this point, they've been, those who have been working have been working with bricks and mortar. That's a different skill set than with fine thread and linen and uh, gold and, and uh, so on and so forth. So what made them qualified? Says Ramban, only one thing. They stepped forward and felt that they wished to be involved. These are the two phrases in our Mishnah. The second phrase, Nadvarucho, from Nidivut, right, to Nidava, is those who gave gifts. But Nisa'oli means their heart raised them up. They just came forward and said, Hashem is asking people to, to, to be involved. I don't know how to do it, but I want to be involved. And their heart raised them up to, be, to actually do the work of Melech HaSamishkan. And that is really a truly remarkable thing. So this, for our purposes this evening, for our discussion, is the third and final explanation between these two phrases uh, and we see how different it is from the first two. It's not two types of giving the same thing or two amounts of giving the same thing. It's literally giving of one's assets, which is not varucho, or giving of oneself. The entire Mishkan was constructed by people who days earlier would have no idea 
how to do any of this and they came forward, their heart raised them up and the, the result was the Mishkan in all of its glory. And while we're on the subject, if we move me'inyan le'inyan, while we're on the subject of contributions to the Mishkan, I'd like to talk about a different type of contribution. And it's based on a discussion of Rebleib Hyman Zatzal, the Rav of the Groshul in, in Bayer who has a really wonderful chidushim and ideas. And he begins our, his discussion of our final parshas in Chumashimos by taking us back to the very beginning, actually to before the beginning of, of Shemos, to the Ramban's introduction. The Ramban, as we know, refers to Chumash Shemos, not surprisingly, as Chumash HaGeula. It's the Chumash of redemption. And it is devoted to seeing the Jewish people go from exile, from subjugation, to redemption. <laughs> now, their, their exiled state and their oppressed state in the beginning of the Parsha is clear for all to see. Avodim hayinu as we'll say quite soon. But what defines their redeemed state? When does the Chumash end? When is Shemos concluded? Well, as we know, we leave Mitzrayim about halfway through, Parshas B'Shalach, Kriyas Yamsuf, and the second half of Chumash Shemos is about the manufacture of the Mishkan. What's that got to do with Geula? Says Ramban, because pending geographically entering the land of Israel, which will not happen until after the Chumash itself, the Jewish people are fundamentally in a redeemed state when they return to a state which is called, which he refers to as the Ma'alas Avosam Yashuvun. They return to the elevated status of their forebears, of their ancestors. And what typifies and what characterizes the elevated status of the Avos, says Ramban, Sod Eloka al Ohalehem. Hashem's presence was there with on over hovering over their tents, as if to say, at home with the divine presence. That was what characterized the, the Avos, Sod Eloka Ale And therefore, when the Jewish people build a Mishkan and Hashem comes to dwell with them, they are in a conceptual sense, fundamentally now redeemed. Again, the full political and geographical redemption will be when we go to live with Hashem in Eretz Yisrael. But pending that, in terms of a fundamental uh, connection, having made an abode for the divine presence, that's when the Jewish people are fundamentally redeemed. And that is the end of Chumash Shemos. With that, the Chumash of Geula concludes because Geula has fundamentally been achieved. Says Rav Hyman, if this is the definition of Geula, to return to how the fathers were as represented by the Mishkan, we can fully expect, or should not be surprised more correctly, to see that the original, the first contributors to the Mishkan itself were none other than the Avos and the Imahos. For when we look and we, we consider and contemplate, we will see that each of the Avos and each of the Imahos has a contribution and has a, a component part or an element that they give towards the Mishkan.
How do we see this? Where, where do we see the others in the Imahus in the Mishkan? Says Rav Hyman. We begin with Avram. And where is Avram in the Mishkan? One of the very interesting uh, aspects of the Mishkan is what is known as the Briah HaTichon. The Briah HaTichon is the pole that actually went through the, actually th- through the thickness of the walls of the Mishkan, the thickness of all the beams. And indeed, according to Chazal, it then began, it turned corners, meaning it went through all of the 20 on the north side, ter- took a right turn, and then went through the left side, and then took a right turn again, which if it's miraculous, and that's the Mishkan. <coughs> Where is that Briah HaTichon from? The Targum Yonus Ben in Parshas Truma, when it first discusses this Briah this beam that goes all the way through, says this beam originated in the Eshel, in that orchard that was planted by Avram Avinu. In Parshas Vayera, we're told, Vayita Eshel Bebe'er Shava, says Targum Yonus Ben the wood from that Eshel is what made the so not surprisingly, the, the, what runs through the very body of the Mishkan is a contribution from Avram Avinu. Skipping over Yitzchak just for a moment, we'll soon see why. If we move to Yaakov, <coughs> so there is a well-known Medrash which says something very similar. The Kroshim, the beams themselves of the Mishkan, Rashi tells us in Pasha's Truma, it's from the Medrash. Where were those Kroshim from? Where was the cedar wood from? And the Medrash states that when Yaakov came, originally came down to Mitzrayim, he bought cedar trees with him and planted them and told his children, there will come a time when you will yet leave. When you do take these trees with you, the wood will be needed for the Mishkan. That is forward thinking. But as Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky says very beautifully in Parshas Truma, it's something like that that really gave the Jewish people hope during all the very, very difficult years and decades in, the, in their oppression in Mitzrayim. Because when one speaks with words that can have a certain effect, maybe yes, maybe no. But what if there's a tangible object? It's not just words. It's not just saying you'll believe, but rather you'll leave and with these trees you'll leave and take care of them. You have something you can look at and, 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 and encounter, which represents something that you'll need for the Mishkan when you're, and, and who knows how much uh, encouragement and strength that gave to and those were provided by Yaakov. He made a point of, of taking them with him from Be'er Sheva when he came down to Mitzrayim. So, so far we have Avram with the Briah HaTichon, that pole that goes through, through all the body of the Mishkan, or the walls. The walls themselves are made of beams from Yaakov. And where is Yitzchak? Well, Yitzchak's imprimatur on the Mishkan is very profound. Because as we know, the Mishkan was only set up in the first day of Nisan. And <coughs> lest we think that it, was, it only began to operate on the first of Nisan, because that's when it was ready, it's not so. 
The Medrash informs us that the construction of everything required for the Mishkan was already completed weeks earlier. In fact, it was on Hanukkah, the 25th of Kislev. That's why the Medrash famously says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so to speak, owes us a Hanukkah. He owes the Mishkan a Hanukkah for, for or the 25th of Kislev because the original one was deferred into the month of Teves and Shvat and Adar. It was delayed three months. It was ready at the end of Kislev, but everything was delayed until the beginning of Nisan. Why? Says the Medrash, in order to wait for the month in which Yitzhak was born. Yitzhak was born <coughs> in the month of Nisan, and therefore the time to open the Mishkan, to inaugurate the Mishkan, is also likewise in the month of Nisan. And why is this so? Well, one can explain it in many ways, but the simplest way is that Yitzhak represents the concept of Avodah. We know there's three pillars of Judaism, Torah, Avodah, Gemilas Hasodim, <coughs> and they are divided between Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov. Avram is Chesed, Hesach Nosas Orchim, and Yaakov is Torah, Ishtam, Yosheva Halim, the Yeshiva of Shame, the Yeshiva of Aver, and Yitzhak is Avodah. I mean, he, is, he himself is a Korban. <coughs> and therefore, the Mishkan, which is the center of Avodah, needs to be launched and aligned with the birth of Yitzhak. And that's Yitzhak's contribution to the Mishkan, the timing of its initiation and inauguration. And thus, we have each of the Avos, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, putting their, their fingerprints on the Mishkan. What about the Imahos? Sara, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. Cesar of Hyman. We find <coughs> that if we begin again with Rachel and Leah, <coughs> that each of them is represented specifically when it comes to the Mishkan. Because the chief architects and artisans of the Mishkan were two individuals. One of them was Betzalel, and the other was Aholiav. Betzalel is from Shevet Yehuda, and Aholiav is from the tribe of Dan. Yehuda belongs to Leah, it's one of the sons of Leah, and Dan, as the as son of Bilhah, is in the, is in the, the group of Rachel. The reason why both of these were required is in order to give input both to uh, those from Leah and those from Rachel in the enterprise which is called the building of the Mishkan. And indeed, it's very interesting that all of the significant uh, enterprises and developments within the Jewish people were somehow or in some form a combination of a descendant from Rachel and a descendant from Leah. As we say in Megillas Rus, Asher Banu Shtehen Beis Yisrael, between the two of them, because they both represented that final stage of, of the matriarchs. And thus you find, for example, our Geula, in the fullest sense of the word, our, our redemption from Egypt, it was begun by Moshe, who took us out of Mitzrayim, led us to Harsinai, but then who, and Moshe is from Shevet Levi, Levi is from Leah, but then who took us into the land of Israel? It's Yehoshua, and Yehoshua is from Yosef, that's from Rachel. What about the monarchy? <coughs> well, the first of the kings was from Binyamin, that's Shaul, that's from Rachel. 
later on from David, who is from Leah. In fact, even the story of Purim is interesting because Mordechai, who is the prime uh, protagonist, Mordechai and Esther together, where are they from? Mordechai is both Ish Yehudi and Ish Yemini. As the Gemara says, one of his parents was from Yehuda, the other was from Binyamin. He's a combination of Rachel and Leah. And so too in the future, with regards to Mashiach, there's the concept of Mashiach ben David from Leah and Mashiach ben Yosef again from Rachel. And, and we see every significant enterprise with the Jewish people has the collaboration uh, of of Rachel Aleah, representation of Rachel Aleah. And so too, with regards to the Mishkan, you have Betzalel from Shevet Yehuda and Ahaliyav from Dan. And what about Sarah and Rivka? Sarah and Rivka are actually the ones who are closest to what will later become the, 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 the uh, happenings within the Mishkan. How so? As we know, in Parshas Chayesara, when uh, Rivka is brought back by Eliezer, so the Pasuk states, it's in Bereshus Perik Kavdalet, Pasuk Samach Zion, that uh, Yitzhak brought her, Ha'ohala Sara Imo. He brought her into the tent of Sara. But Rashi says, that, I mean, that phraseology is very telling. Ha'ohala Sara Imo meaning, because she's like Sara. And there were certain things that pertained and existed uh, in Sarah's time, which went away when Sarah passed away, and then which came back with Rivka. And what are they specifically? Says Rashi. Well, there was a light that stayed lit from the beginning of the week till the end. Secondly, there was Bracha Be'isa. <coughs> the dough lasted from the beginning of the week till the end, even just one day's of dough. And thirdly, there was a cloud on top of the tent, which stayed there, representing, of course, the divine. And that, those three things were ex- pertained in the time of Sarah, went away with her passing and came back with Rivka. What are those things? And, and don't forget the Ramban's words, Sod eloka al-ohalehem, the divine presence hovers above their tents. And what do we see? The first of those signs of blessing was that the light remained lit, as it did in the menorah, in the Mishkan. The Ner Tamid, is, it, it remains lit. It doesn't, it doesn't go out. Unless you put it out, but it doesn't go out. Secondly, Bracha Be'isa. There is blessing in the dough. That corresponds, says Maharal, to the Lechem Aponim which, as we know, was, was, it was baked on, the, uh, on Erev Shabbos. It stayed on the Shulchan for the whole week, and it was as fresh a week later, or eight days later, as it was the day that it was baked. That's Bracha Be'isa. And finally, the cloud, which represents the Keteres, which, as we'll discuss uh, quite soon, <coughs> is, is about the, the, uh, being in the presence of the divine, the cloud on top of the, of the tent. And therefore we see that Sarah and Rivka represent the actual parallels of things that will pertain in the Mishkan itself. And this is the, the very wonderful uh, tour 
that Rav Hyman gives us of the Mishkan in the footsteps of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, each one in their own way, materials involved, personalities involved, timing, the things that go on there, and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. If we move from Parshas Vayaka, we're treated this week to two Parshas, Vayaka and Pikude. If we move now to Pikude, so Pikude really, again, the most helpful way to describe it is it, it's the other side of Parshas Tetzave. In other words, Tetzave commands the making of the Big Day Kahuna, and Pikude describes how they were made. And the way that they were made is basically the way they were told to be made. I'd like to focus from within the vantage point of, of Pekude, in one of the priestly garments of the, of the Kohen Godel, as we know, a regular quote-unquote uh, Kohen, <coughs> so he wears the four garments, and then the, the Kohen Godel has an additional four. And one of the additional four is a Me'il. And let's have a look at how that is described. It's going to be in Perik Lamites, Pasuk, well, the Pasuk that we want is Pasuk Kaf Hei. Um, and before we, before we read the Pasuk, let's say like this. As we know, a distinctive feature of the Me'il, of this uh, additional garment for the Kohen Godel, uh, which was itself made of Techeles, is that on its hem, you had uh, two things. Pa'amonim, verimonim. You had pomegranates, material in the shape of pomegranates, and you had bells. Pa'amon is a bell. And these were at the hem, all around, of the mi'il. <laughs> and the Pasuk states that the, the what's, how should they be positioned? The bells, pa'amonim, zahav, should be besocharimonim. Within the pomegranates. Besoch. In. In the pomegranates. The question is, what does it mean that the bell should be besoch? And here we have an interesting machlokas, I don't think we've ever spoken about it, between Rashi and Ramban. Because when you talk about one entity being, being within another entity, there are actually a couple of possibilities. Rashi explains that when the Torah says that the bells should be betocharimonim, what it means is they should be, each bell should be surrounded by a rimon, a pomegranate on each side. So pamon zahav rimon, as other words, as you go, each bell has a pomegranate on either side of it. And that's why all of the bells are betocharimonim. They're within because they have, they have a pomegranate on either side. That's how Rashi explains, and I think that's how most people imagine it. If you would picture the, the Me'il, um, so it, it, it's, it's normally we, we think of it like Rashi. It's basically uh, pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell, so that each bell has pomegranate on either side, betocharimonim. The Ramban, however, explains differently. The Ramban says that when the Pasuk instructs that the bell should be besocharimonim, it doesn't mean in between the pomegranates. It means inside 
the pomegranates. And what that means is that literally inside each and every pomegranate was a bell. Which means if you, if you looked at the hem, all you'd really probably see is the pomegranates. But inside is a bell. Beso harimonim. It's a very interesting machlokas. And there, and there you have it. Now, it's interesting to see, now that we've seen two possibilities, again, whether toch means in between or literally inside each and every one, uh, what is Unculus's position? So, in the, the command for these bells and pomegranates is in Parshish Tetzaveh, Perek Kavches, Pasuk Lamed Gimel. So if we take a look at Perik Kavches, Pasuk Lamed Gimel, and again, we try and consult Unculus on a, a user-friendly basis, but the Pasuk says there, firstly to read the Pasuk. Again, Shmos Perik Kavches, Pasuk Lamed you shall make on the hem you have these pomegranates of all these materials of the different types of, of wool etc al shulav saviv on the hem all around saviv and also bells of gold and that of course is the critical word within them how within them in between them or inside of them? Well, Unculus says, Zagin de Dava, bells of gold, Beinehon, between them. So if we were wondering, on whose side of this discussion does Unculus come down on, we shall be in suspense no longer. He is like Rashi, that Betoch means between them. And now we know, Let's come back to Parshas Pekude <coughs> and the Pasuk that we had referred to just before when they're actually made is Perik Lamates Pasuk Kafhei. And again the Pasuk says They made golden, golden bells and they placed the bells Unculus on those words says, the Yohavayot Sagaya, they placed the bells, Bego Rimonaya. The word go in Aramaic means inside. And now we are in a very interesting position. Because we saw that there are two approaches among the classic Rishonim as to how were these bells positioned, in between the pomegranates or inside the pomegranates. And, and Rashi says what he says, Ramban says what he says, and that's that. And never the twain shall meet. And along comes Unculus, actually preceding both of them, of course. And amazingly, in the two places where the Torah talks about this, in the one place he says, so to speak, like Rashi, Hon, the bells are in between, and the other place, like Ramban, which is even more perplexing, because which is it? So I was alerted to a, a fascinating explanation of this, uh, of Unculus, uh, by my son. 
And it's discussed in, in the writings, the Sefer called Bad Kodesh, which are the writings of Rebel Pavarsky, who's uh, one of the Rosh Hashivas of <coughs> Ponovich. And it's a really compelling thing that he says. Let, let, let's hear it. Firstly, we go back to how we started the Shir this evening. You have five parshas, Truma and Tetzaveh, which are the instruction parshas for Mishkan and Bigdekuna. Then you have Kisisa, which is dominated by the Egel, Cheta Egel. And then you have Vayakal and Pikude, which are the construction and manufacture of Mishkan and Bigdekuna. The question is, how are we to understand the actual chronology of these events? Famously, this too is a machlokus between Rashi and Ramban. Rashi states in Kisisa that even though the, the parshas of Truman and Tetzaveh are written in the Torah before the Cheta Egel, but the whole thing was only said to Moshe after the Cheta Egel. Ein muktam umu'uchar batorah. Rashi invokes the principle of the Gemara in this context that there is no before, earlier and later. That is to say, the, the order of the writing of the parshas does not always reflect the chronology of the events as they happened. And Kisisa happened before even the instructions in Truman Tetzaveh. However, famously, this is disputed by Ramban. Ramban says, the order that they're written, that's the order that, they're happened, that they happened. Initially, Moshe was instructed to tell the people about the Mishkan and Bigdei Kahuna as per Truma and Tetzaveh. Then, the Egel happened, the Cheta Egel happened, which shelved the project of the Mishkan for a while, until after Yom Kippur, it was brought back. That is the position of Ramban. We do not say in Mukta Mamur here. <coughs> Ramban almost never says it, almost never invokes it. And the order as they're written is the order that they happen. But this is very interesting because according to the Ramban, something cataclysmic occurred in between these in between the instructions of the Mishkan and Big Tekuna and their actual manufacture. Namely, the disaster of the Cheta Ega. And it made a difference. The Mishkan is still going to happen, but things are different now. We know that things are different, but was anything different about the Mishkan and the Big Day Kahuna? Says Beryl Pravarsky, yes. We have a principle. Ein kategor nase sanegor. The prosecution cannot become the defense. And what does that mean? It means something that was involved in a sin cannot, cannot then be involved to advocate for the, for the atonement of that sin, for the expiation of that sin. What does that mean practically? Says the Gemara, for example, on Yom Kippur, when the Kohen Gadol goes into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, he, doesn't wear, he only wears white. He does not wear any of his additional garments. Why? Because they have gold in them. And gold is not our favorite color on Yom Kippur because it's reminiscent of the Egel Hazav, of the golden calf. And therefore gold lets get, gets left behind in that very, very sensitive domain called the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Interestingly, <coughs> this translates into a very well-known minhag whereby people do not wear gold 
on Yom Kippur. It's not, it's not a prohibition, or you're not in the Kodesh HaKadoshim, but it's an established minnok if you have a gold watch or, or, or whatever else it might be. Uh, people do not wear gold. An extension of that minhag is also the women do not wear gold, who possibly are more likely to wear gold anyway, uh, also don't wear gold in Yom Kippur. Although others say that it's actually not necessary for women not to wear gold, because women weren't involved in the Chet Ha'egal. And therefore there's no reason why they can't come to Yom Kippur with gold. Gold is not an indictment in the women's gallery. It is in the men's section. So those who say that, who have the custom that even women uh, don't wear gold in Yom Kippur, it's either out of solidarity or perhaps emotional support uh, for their husbands, who probably could do with the support. So this is the, the concept of Ein Kategor Nasesanegor. We diminish, gold is, has a different color now, or a different coloring after the Cheta Egel. Now, on Yom Kippur, you can leave it behind as you go to the Kodesh HaKadoshim. But in general, I mean, the, the Kohen, it's one of the priestly garments. It, it, it can't just disappear. Says Rebarel, yeah, it can't disappear. But it can be made more discreet. That is why Unculus changes his translation of the term betoch with regards to the relationship between the bells and the pomegranates, because it changed from Parsha Tetzaveh to our Parsha of Pikude. Initially, Unculus translated as the, the bells are bene home, they're between them, highly visible. Why not? In Parsha Tetzaveh, let them be seen, not just heard. But in Parshas Pekude, we're looking to downplay the presence of gold, even when the Kohen Gadol wears the big dekuhuna. But how can you do that? Don't they have to be betachorimanim? Yes. And, and now they're actually tucked inside the pomegranates. That's why Unculus translates in our Parsha the word betoch as bego, literally inside. It is an apt, I think it's a fascinating uh, approach to this, this Unculus. Firstly, to notice. You can. It's very easy, not, not even to have seen that Uncle has shifted his translation, but in such a contested matter between Rashi and Ramban, in a sense he makes sholem between them, based on the before and after of the Cheta Egel. Dvarim Nifloim. We cannot take leave of our discussion of the of the me'il with the bells and the pomegranates without referring to something which we, uh, we discuss whenever we can, the Akedas Yitzchak, Rebbeinu Yitzchak Aramah, and he discusses the Gemara, which says that the priestly garments, the Big Kahuna, they're like korbonos. They're mentioned in juxtaposition to korbonos because they offer atonement like korbonos. And the Gemara outlines each one, what it atones for, which sin. And when it comes to the Me'il, says the Gemara, it atones for Lashon Hara. The clinkling of the bells, the jingling of the bells, that sound atones for the sound of people speaking Lashon Hara. And as we've mentioned in the past, this seems to be just a little too convenient, a little too easy. After all, uh, we get to speak Lashon Hara, and as long as the Kohen Godel is wearing uh, the, the me'il with the bells, everything is fine. I mean, if there, ever, if there was ever a case of being saved by the bells, it's here. 
But what does it mean? So the Akedas Yitzhak says, when the Gemara says that these garments are an atonement for these sins, it means each one contains a message. The best atonement is avoidance. The best atonement for Lashon Hara is avoiding Lashon Hara. But how do you avoid it? Well, to see how you avoid it, you've got to understand why we engage in it in the first place. Isn't it interesting, says Akedas Yitzchak, that we talk about people, we mention their faults, because maybe that's all we see. And that's how we define them. So that's the talking point. And therefore, when the bell rings, it... Uh, it, it, it doesn't normally sound good. But that's why, says the Torah, surrounding each bell, and however you understand what surrounding means, like Rashi Ramban is a pomegranate. Why? Because the Gemara says in Maseches Brochus Dafnun Ches, based on the Posuk in Shirashirim, Kefelach Harimon Rakatech, Afilu Rekonin Shebi Yisrael, even the empty ones among Israel are full of mitzvahs, like a pomegranate. Melea mitzvahs Karima. To teach you, says Akedas Yitzchak, there's plenty, of, there's plenty of good that fills all those people. How can they be empty and full at the same time? Because it depends what you see. It's possible to look at someone who's full of good things, but to see only emptiness. So if that's what you see, that's what you'll say. And thus, the, the ultimate atonement for, for, for Loshan Hara, says Akedas Yitzchak, is remember... The person next to you is a pomegranate. Maybe you should ask yourself why all you see are their faults. Because, because if you do, they'll look empty to you. But all the good things that they're full of, which you're avoiding, are really the things you should be talking about. When you sound your bell, it should be about the, the mitzvahs and the good qualities, which almost everyone has. From here, we move to the final... Uh, Perik of the Chumash, Perik Mem, which is the setting up of the Mishkan. And the Torah details, Hashem describes to Moshe all the things that he should, uh, every, exactly everything, what he, should, what he should do, what he should make, where he should place it. And let's take a look specifically at Perik Mem, Pasuk Hey. Because it begins with the, the opening Sukkim of the various uh, inner vessels of the Mishkan. As we know, there were two altars, two mizbechos, two, uh, right? The inner one of gold was for the katoras, the outer one of copper was for the korbonos. So mizbach hazav lekatoras, the inner one of gold for the katoras, lifnei aron haedos, you should place that before the Ark of the Testimony. Okay. And, and that's enough uh, for our, to, to begin our discussion. Hashem commands Moshe to place the golden mizbeach, the gold mizbeach for the keteres, lifnei aron ha'edus, before the aron, before the ark. What does he mean? What is the meaning of those words, that this golden mizbeach is lifnei aron ha'edus? So on a simple level, says Meshachachma, uh, it's about the positioning, because as we know, Whereas the menorah and the shulchan were to the right and to the left a little bit, you know, closer to the southern wall, closer to the northern wall. But the mizbeach of the Keturus was centered. It was exactly midway between north and south. And that aligns it completely with the aron, which was also exactly halfway between north and south. 
And that place is, these are the two items that are in the center, and thus we say that the, the gold Mizbeach is before the Aron, directly in line with the Aron. The interesting thing, though, however, says Meshachachma, is that we never find this positioning referred to anywhere else. Later on, when the Pasuk actually refers to Moshe putting the, the uh, gold Mizbeach in place, it says that he put it Lifneha Paroches, before the Paroches, which is, you know, not in the Holy of Holies, but in the main sanctuary. That's what it says, Lifneha Paroches. And indeed, in Parshas Tetzava, when Moshe is originally told, to make the, or commanded regarding the, the making of this gold mizbeach, again it, it says there that it should be placed lefneha paroches, before the paroches, before the dividing curtain. Our question therefore is, why is it that in two of these occasions its positioning is simply lefneha paroches, but in our pasuk it's called lefneha aron, before the aron? What does that mean? Says Meshachachma. There is a major discussion among Rishonim with reference to the the mitzvah of Ketoros. What's it all about? This incense, these uh, fragrant uh, smelling spices which are put on that Mizbeach. And the Rambam has an approach to this. And it's to be found in the third section of the third and final section of Moronavuchim, which uh, among other things, is dedicated to providing reasons for all of the mitzvahs. And when it comes to the mitzvah of the Ketores, the Rambam says, this is in Mernavuchim, Chele Gimel Perik Memhe. The reason for Ketores, says Rambam, is because there was a lot of uh, involvement with uh, dealing with animals and shechting them, and then cleaning them, and then offering them on the Mizbeach, and the various parts would be burnt, and others were, were other things needed to, to happen with them. Says Ramban, says Rambam, sorry, the, the, the odor that normally would be given off by, by animals in that way, it would be like a, like a butcher shop. Not conducive to the elevated um, atmosphere that should accrue to the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash. To that end, therefore, says Rambam, the Torah commands to offer Ketores, to offset, that these spices should offset the, the uh, oppressive or odor or, or negative odor that, uh, that come from all of the uh, animals that are being offered as korbonus. So says Rambam. And this explanation of Rambam was the subject of vigorous objection by later Rishonim, chief among them, Rabbeinu Bachir. And Rabbeinu Bachir in Parshas Tetzaveh, he asks two very simple but uh, unavoidable questions. First, he says Rabbeinu Bachir, if it's true, the two questions are similar to each other, because if it's just quote-unquote to have a pleasant aroma in order to that should really carry the day in the Mishkan, there should be ultimately a pleasant aroma. There are certain things about Keturus which cannot be explained. Key things, core things. Firstly, says Rabbeinu Bachya, the Torah is extremely specific as to the, the ingredients of the Keturus 
And moreover, the makeup of the clitoris, if one changes the composition even, the relative amounts to each other, he's violated a prohibition. Says Rabbeinu Bacher, would you mind telling me what all the fuss is about if he gives a bit more of the, a bit more of the tsari and a bit less of the tsiporen and but at the end of the day, if it smells good, I mean, that's what it's all about. Additionally, the Pasuk tells us in Parshas Kisisa, and you have to read the Pasuk really to get the full impact of what, of what he's about to, to say this is in Perik Lamed, Pasuk Lamed Ches, and that's the Keturus is in Parshas Kisisa. What if a person should, should make ketores in exactly the same quantities as they are in the Mishkan for private use? Smelled good in the Mishkan, he'd like it to smell good at home. So in his kitchen, he puts exactly a representation of the, of the composition, ingredients of the ketores. Says the Pasuk, that person will be cut off from his people. Kares, extremely severe. But once again, I don't understand why. In other words, uh, the Torah wants to have a pleasant aroma in the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash. Very good. A person can't have it at home. Does it, it's Kares to replicate it. Why ever would that be? And for these reasons, says Rebbeinu Bachya, Yesh Leharchik, one should distance the explanation uh, of the of the Rambam as was given in the Moranavuchim. To these two very, very tough uh, questions, the Meshachma adds a third. It says Meshachma, we know that Keturus was offered even during the seven preparatory days of the Miluim. Before the Mishkan was actually set up for good on the first of Nisan, the last seven days of Adar were the seven preparatory days of the Milun. And they are described in um, they are described in well, depending on how you learn the Psukim, so we'll, 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 we'll keep off from that. <coughs> but what do we know about those seven preparatory days? A couple of things. Firstly, there were very few korbanos during that entire week. Secondly, the Mishkan was, was dismantled at the end of each day. In other words, says Meshachachma, this is another major question mark on the Rambam. Because there were almost no korbanos, and the whole structure was really dismantled at the end of the day, what need would there be for Keturus? And the Meshachachma sees this final point as the most compelling point. And in his understanding, the opening verses of Perik Mem are about these seven days of the Miluim. And that is why, says Meshachachma, in our chapter, the, the golden Mizbech is called and referred to as Lifneha Aron, before the Aron. Because you need to know that the goal and role of the Keturus is not just to provide a pleasant aroma. It is much more intrinsic 
to the residing of the divine presence in the Mishkan. In, in very, very mystical ways, and he refers to, to the works of the Kabbalists, etc. There is undoubtedly much more to the Keturahs than just, quote-unquote, a, a pleasant smell for the, for the Mishkan. There are secrets, there are mystical uh, concepts involved in the Keturahs. And how does the Torah communicate this aspect of the Keturahs? By, in this one Pasuk, referring to the Mizbeach of the Keturahs as Lifnei Ha'aron, it is before the Aron. The Shekhinah resides in the Aron, and this is before it because it is contributing to enhancing the conditions that allow for the Divine Presence to reside in, uh, uh, in the Aron, however that works. But, but it's, an, it's enough to have the, the Mizbeach of the Keturahs referred to in that way. And, and, and again, just to tie these two points together, what the Meshachachma, I believe, means to say is that's why it's specifically in our chapter that it's referred to as Lifnei Ha'aron. Because our chapter, so to speak, clinches the matter. Because if our chapter refers to the seven preparatory days, and it's those seven preparatory days that demonstrate that the Keturahs must be beyond just offsetting a negative smell, that's where the Torah emphasizes, indeed that's true, it's Lifneha Aron. It's for Aron purposes. It's for divine presence purposes. This is a very, very uh, unique, I think, interesting section of the Meshachachma. For a simple reason. If there's one personality that the Meshachachma one could call a devotee of, it's the Rambam. Throughout Meshachachma, he quotes Rambam more than anyone else. He refers to him as Rabbeinu Moshe, and sometimes he just calls him Rabbeinu. And if you don't know who Rabbeinu is, so start the Meshachachma from the beginning again, because it's the Rambam. And what's so fascinating is, here you see, on the one hand, as devoted as he is, and has, uh, as, uh, he has boundless admiration and reverence for every word of the Rambam, that doesn't stop him, not only in our situation, from explaining the Pasuk differently than the Rambam, but it's more than that. According to Meshachachma, the Pasuk is going out of its way to shut out the, the explanation that the Rambam is giving. It's emphasizing that it's Lefnei Ha'aron, not like what the Rambam is saying. So this is really a very uh, significant moment uh, in, in the Sefer Meshachachma because he has sided with an understanding of the Psukim which are themselves negating the, the Rambam's approach. What is actually very interesting is <clears throat> when, he bring, when he quotes the opinion of the Rambam about Keturis in the beginning of his discussion, he doesn't, he doesn't mention the Rambam by name. He says, Kadmonim, Early, early commentators said the reason for the Keturahs is, is to offset a negative smell. Who are these early commentators? It's only the Rambam. Why doesn't he mention the Rambam by name? So, I mean, Libby Omerli, because it, I think it's hard, it, because out of respect for the Rambam, he's about to completely explain the Psukim in 180 degree opposition to the Rambam. So, he doesn't leave anything unsaid, but he will not mention the Rambam's name. Even there, you see the covet that he has for Rambam. Kadmonim. If you don't know who Kadmonim are, read the footnotes. Or, you know, broaden your, your, your investigations and then come back. 
So truly, truly a fascinating uh, situation here. And just a final half a moment with regards to Rambam himself, and this is always true. The Ritva says this uh, uh, elsewhere. The nature of the Moronavuchim, <clears throat> and how would the Rambam respond to these questions? <clears throat> it's the nature of the Moronavuchim that the Rambam it can only present an explanation in that Sefer which is either philosophical in nature or philosophy-friendly or rationale-friendly. Because if the, if the answer is it's a mystery and we don't understand it, that's what everyone knew before he wrote the Moronavuchim. He wrote the Moronavuchim to give people, they had nothing to say for themselves and, or to, about Judaism to their non-Jewish neighbors, etc. It says, Rambam, if you need something to say, this is it. And we should not misunderstand. It's not that the Rambam says things that he thinks are not true in the Moronavuchim. But rather, he says things which couldn't be the totality of the truth. But they're the only aspect of the truth that you can say. That's why it comes across as problematic. In other words, is it wrong to say that an element of the Keturus is to offset a negative odor? It's not inconceivable. There is no doubt that there is infinitely more to it than that. But the infinitely more is not for the audience of the Moronavuchim or the people that they need to acquit themselves by. And therefore, this, the Ritva says, I think it's really key for many of these situations with Rambam. Even if it's not... It, the reason why it's unsatisfactory is because even if it's true, it's not the whole truth, but it's all of the truth that the Rambam was able to put into to the Moronavuchim. Certainly more tam velo nishlam, more to say about uh, that discussion, Hashem, as other situations arise. But in the meanwhile, this brings us to the end of our discussion of Vayakal and Pekude, Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazek, and Mitzashem will meet again next week to open the Chumash of Vayikra. I wish you all a good night and a wonderful week.